The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Nice to see everybody here tonight. So um, most of uh, this fall so far I've been giving talks about concentration practice in daily life. Um, most of you remember probably that the Buddha often spoke of this path in terms of the Eightfold Path, these eight qualities, <clears throat> and they can be divided into three sections. So there's the section of wisdom or panya, which includes right view and right intention. There's the section on sila or living harmoniously, living with ethical, sort of a um, clear ethical standard of non-harming, and that includes things like right speech and right action, right livelihood. And then this last part, although it's not necessarily in a linear order, is samadhi, this concentration or the coming together of the mind, the non-dispersal of the mind. And under that category, it's right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And so all year long, we've been looking at the Eightfold Path in terms of how we develop this, not just in our sitting practice, but more generally throughout the day. And so that's what we're doing now with this third category of samadhi. How do we cultivate, what does samadhi look like in daily life? And how, what can we do to cultivate it, develop samadhi in daily life? <clears throat> and over the last few weeks, I've talked about patience, that cultivating patience really supports that, the purity of our presence. Because that's what samadhi means. It means that in any given moment, the mind's not distorted. There's a purity and that purity really means that there, there's a quality of attention that's not disturbed. So we're really connecting with whatever is there in the present moment, whether we're meeting, connecting with another human being, or doing some task. But there's a kind of uh, fullness or intimacy, non-scatteredness in that activity, in that moment. And earlier when I introduced this whole section on uh, looking at samadhi in terms of daily life, I mentioned, just to get us interested, that to me it seemed like the essence of competence. That if we look at people we consider to be competent, we'll see that what they're able to do is they're able to uh, do whatever we think they're competent in. They're doing it with samadhi. The mind has a kind of presence, fullness, non-dispersal, non-dispersion in that activity that gives them some real power, some real competence in that activity. And, you know, there's lots of different kinds of concentration. Um, you know, somebody, uh, somebody robbing a bank or beating up somebody could be quite concentrated in that activity. 
So samadhi means that the mind is concentrated or in some wholesome activity, some neutral or wholesome activity. So what that means is there's a kind of a release. There's this combination of the fullness of presence. The, the mind is collected in the experience, but it's not tight. There's a, a release also in the mind and body. It's not the concentration, the coming together of the mind or the, the collecting of the energy of the mind isn't being driven by fear or greed or lust, right? It's, it's, uh, it's inspired by something beautiful like love or like interest. So this gives us some ideas of, you know, well, what we might do in our daily lives places in our daily lives where we can begin to develop this skill and to notice places in our lives where it's not so strong and and to just be curious like well what's getting in the way it's so interesting to see like if we just you know if we had some time you know if we thought about like well where are some places in your life where you feel like you're, you don't have much samadhi where you're, the mind is like has a tendency to be restless or distracted or not connecting with what's going on, reactive. You could probably think of a lot of places. And then it would be really interesting as the more we get to know what the actual experience of samadhi is, then it would be interesting to ask yourself, well, what's in the way? What's actually in the way of this kind of full presence, a real commitment, a real, like, uh, this is my life, so I'm really showing up in this activity, in this moment. So instead of the view that we often have as we go through the day, which is, this isn't so important, you know, I'm just scrambling eggs, or I'm just sweeping out the kitchen. It's not worthy of this kind of devotion, this, this showing up. So we tend to, the mind tends to dismiss it. It's like not worthy of that kind of effort. So once we understand that samadhi is wholesome in and of itself, that we don't need like a special moment that makes samadhi a wholesome thing, but any moment, it's just, it's, uh, it's like one of these things that's always healing, always wholesome to be fully present, to really show up, to be in this um, kind of clear and released or relaxed presence. Then then we get a sense, you know, then we can uh, start to remember, well, what about now? I mean, that's, that's mostly what's in the way. Is we, it doesn't occur to us to give our full presence in so many of the moments of our daily life. It just doesn't occur to us. So now we can just begin to inspire ourselves. What about now? I was, uh, I had this thought because I was preparing for this class. I had to write a check for somebody who's working on the building, the new building. And uh, I was, you know, rushing to prepare for a meeting and had to do these things and 
kind of running down to the basement to get the checkbook and sitting down. And, and then it occurred to me, oh, well, what about this moment? <laughs> and, you know, it's a completely different experience to, like, really be there when you're opening the checkbook and paging through. Not necessarily more slowly than I would otherwise do. You know, and holding the pen and signing my name, you know. Usually we sign our name on automatic pilot, but to, just to appreciate the, the sensuality of writing. You know, it's, it's like anything. If we give enough attention to it, it's a beautiful experience. And so much of this basic happiness we miss because of the ongoing habit view, which is this moment ain't important. This isn't important. You know, I'm really interested in this other moment I imagine is just around the corner, you know, later. So for the next few weeks, uh, I'll go through the... Um, three elements of samadhi from the way the Buddha described the Eightfold Path. So under this category of samadhi, there's right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And it's, you know, the whole area of samadhi is about purifying the mind, just like sila is about purifying our actions. Samadhi is about purifying the mind. But purifying is sort of a provocative word for a lot of us because it smacks of, you know, being holy and versus being evil, and it can push our buttons a bit. But what we mean by purifying the mind is, it's like um, we're understanding that the mind, if, if there isn't some effort to transform the mind, then the mind is going to relate in its habit way. That's just, that's what it does. It's sort of the default is to, for the mind to relate to experience in the way that it usually relates to experience. So if samadhi isn't our habit, then we need to purify the mind of its habit, which is to be distracted, to be jumping from this to that, to be reactive, to be in denial. I mean, that's the habit. So that's why we need to pure. We're purifying the mind from its habit of distraction in order to realize uh, the state of non-distraction or that wholeness, full presence. And then to do that, we have right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. It's really the, the elements that lead to the mind being pure. And I really like uh, this part of the Eightfold Path. I mean, I like all, four, all three sections of the Eightfold Path. I, we've been thinking about uh, a new logo for the center. I don't know if you remember, but on our newsletter we've had for the last seven or eight years, it's a drawing of the back entrance, <laughs> so we can't take it to the new building. So, you know, we're thinking of, well, what do you do? You know, do we have a little drawing of our new building? for our logo, or do we use a traditional? And uh, some of you know, one of the, so after we say Kamgar Meditation Center, we say uh, serving the Twin Cities Mindfulness Meditation Community. I think, and then it says, uh, 
walking in the footsteps of the Buddha or walking together in the footsteps of the Buddha or something like that. So we thought, of, well, maybe we'll have, in Buddhism, one of the first uh, symbols of this tradition of practice, just two footprints, because the, the sort of um, lineage of teaching was really seen as a path from our current mind states to a liberated heart or liberated mind. So they had two footprints. And, you know, they didn't really start having statues of Buddha until they had to compete with the Greeks and they had their Apollo and this and that statue. So the Buddhist cultures in northern India started creating statues to, because the other dominant culture had statues. But they had they had the footprint and then the other one was the, the eight-spoked wheel, which represents the Eightfold Path. So I've been thinking, oh, well, maybe maybe we'll just have that traditional symbol. It's kind of a nice, simple circle with the eight little spokes sticking out of the circle. And just identify the three parts of the Eightfold Path, the development of an ethical life, the development of wisdom, or the wisdom of not clinging to things, not taking, not relying on self-centered dramas, and this path of a calm, clear, present mind. Because these are the things that everyone can get behind. I mean, I don't know anybody who somehow would think that self-centered dramas are something to cultivate, or, you know, a non-ethical life is good, or a distraction is good. We all, we all appreciate the beauty and importance of clear, calm, steady attention and a life dedicated to non-harming and a life of real wisdom, you know, that sees beyond our egocentric notions. But I especially like samadhi because it, it really highlights much of what the Buddha taught, which was that all of the problems we see in our interpersonal relationships or families and then out further into the world really are just reflections of the mess in our own minds. So the cumulative effect of all of our sort of, I don't know what the, is it inter or intra-psychic world here, this world within our own minds, the cumulative effect of that is this world that we have right now. Like if we're wondering why is this world like this, all we have to do is look at our minds, what's going on in our minds or our hearts. It's a perfect reflection. And samadhi is really just acknowledging that. What we're saying is uh, it's like a 12-step group. We come together and we say, I'm Mark Nunberg, and, you know, sort of owning responsibility for having a mind that's distracted. You know, we're addicted to distraction. We're addicted to scatteredness, to denial, to reactivity, to fantasy. This is, our mind literally is addicted. It, it seemingly gets some kind of nutriment from this agitated activity that it just spins with most of the time. Not always, not all the time, but probably for most of us, most of the time, right? 
And so, you know, nothing happens for no reason. So there are causes and conditions that support the distracted, reactive, wandering qualities of our, our, our minds, our psychology. And so the first step is to take ownership, in a sense. I know it sounds a little counterintuitive because in Buddhism we're learning to not take things so personally. But at this point, it's important to uh, understand that the way the mind is has arisen due to causes and conditions. It's habit-based and that it can be transformed. We can create different causes and conditions that will result in a different kind of mind state, different kind of presence, different way of relating to the ordinary experience of our day. And so that's really what the samadhi practice is. It's, it's the part of the path that's really, well, they're all, in a sense, easy to dig in with, but this just makes so much sense. And one of the traditional um, descriptions of samadhi is a moment of samadhi is a moment when the mind has abandoned the hindrances. So the mind has abandoned things that irritate, agitate, distort, distract the mind. And in Buddhism, you know, generally it's either talked about in three things. Most of you know this. Hatred or aversion, greed or craving, delusion, denial. So these forces, or you can think of the ten fetters, which include those three, and restlessness, and dullness, and conceit, and speculative views, and uh, skeptical doubt, and a couple other things that I can't remember right now. Um, but in any case, this is, th this is sort of the vocabulary that we're beginning to work with. Just to sort of, let's put it out there, that there are some things the mind engages in, in a sense that we're addicted to, and these things are disturbing and distorting. I mean, it would be one thing if it was just disturbing. But more than just disturbing or agitating the mind, it's, it distorts our life. It distorts what we see. So then our response, what we do in life, is based on that distorted or that uh, misperception. And then... And then we, then the world responds to us based on our action, which was based on our misperception. And it just creates a messy place. Our families are messy. Even when we're all alone, our life is messy. You know, we create, we have our own conflicts with ourselves. So even if we don't have other people to have conflicts with, we have our own conflicts with ourselves. And then we have conflicts within our families, within our job sites, within our communities, within nations. And I'm sure as soon as technology is advanced enough, we'll start having conflicts with other planets or other galaxies <laughs> or something. It's just a matter of time. Because it's reflecting these internal conflicts that we have going on. So samadhi is how is the process of abandoning the internal conflicts. 
in a moment. So don't think about it like forever, but like just having a moment where there's no internal conflict, no internal distortion or disturbance in the mind. So that we're beginning to have moments where we recognize the mind that is free, or at least relatively free, of disturbance. Like To really know that that's a possibility. Because right now, because disturbance is so much the way it is, we just take that to be how it is. Just like if we're caught up in any really addictive behavior, it just becomes who we are. We don't even realize we're lost in addiction, that our life is basically one reactive pattern followed by another reactive pattern, just sort of built on reactivity, like fear or desire or swinging back from between aversion and desire. So we all have our own particular sort of process of distraction of uh, reactivity. But we don't even realize that that's what it is until we start having moments of samadhi, experiencing the mind when it isn't disturbed. And I think probably we have had these moments. The question is, how clear, how strong were these experiences? And do we have a sense of how they arise? Because we might have had and even continue to have moments of real clarity and simplicity in the mind, those moments of samadhi. But if we don't understand how they come about, we can't really use that experience very much. We have to know the science, like what leads to samadhi? And that's really one of the things the Buddha was very effective at, is teaching people how to cultivate samadhi. And of course, the three aspects of the Eightfold Path really support one another, like wisdom has a lot to do with developing samadhi. Having an ethical life has a lot to do with having samadhi. You know, if we're a really generous and kind person, who is really committed to not harming, our mind just naturally begins to settle down. There's just less agitating stuff in our mind than if we're a criminal, a hateful criminal, who you know is caught up in a lot of self-hatred and a lot of judgment of others. Well, of course, that you know, if we live that way in the world, then our mind is going to reflect that kind of negativity, and so it will be pretty disturbed. So the key to samadhi, the beginning of samadhi, is to reflect on well, what kind of effort do I need to make to quiet the mind down, to unhook from those habits of agitating the mind, reacting, you know, the things that disturb the mind. What kind of effort? And this is from Tanisro Bhikkhu, who's a well-known American Buddhist monk and uh, abbot of Wat Metta, it's a Buddhist monastery outside of San Diego. He's a wonderful scholar, um, Tanisro Bhikkhu. He's written many books, translated a number of the discourses. And this is his uh, book, Wings to Awakening, which you can download on the internet or order from, the web, from his uh, monastery, a copy of it. The Buddha notes that some meditators will have to undergo painful, 
it's slow practice, while others will find that their practice is painful and quick, or pleasant and slow, or pleasant and quick, right? We'd like to be that fourth category. Our practice be pleasant and quick. Thus, each has to adjust the effort applied to the practice accordingly. The need for differing levels of effort depends not only on the individual, but also on the situation. In some cases, simply watching an unskillful quality with equanimity will be enough to make it go away. In other cases, one has to exert a conscious effort to get rid of it. Thus, through observation, one will realize that skillful effort has no room for doctrinaire approaches. So this is really important in general in Buddhism. We, it's not like, you know, we take this particular instruction and then we just apply it everywhere. The, the basic essence, I guess that's redundant, the essence of the path is this uh, quality of wakefulness. We need to be awake precisely so we know how to relate to this moment. If, if we just relate to the breath, like if we're doing a sitting meditation, if we just relate to the breath or to the experience of sitting in a habitual way, we're not really practicing. So the way we're relating is related to what we're relating to. So what this means is this discovery that the wisdom to be skillful in the moment depends on being awake. We have to be really awake. We have to be committed to the present moment in order to know how to be skillful in the present moment. We can't just approach our lives, our moments, in a habitual way, even if our habits are really good habits. I mean, it's definitely better to have really good habits than really bad habits. Like bad habits would be habits based on a lot of a narrow, self-centered view of things. And a really good habit would be a habit based on maybe a more universal perspective. But as long as we're trapped in habits, there will be suffering. And, and a limited skillfulness. So the essence of skillfulness is not to approach our lives with a particular strategy. Or you could say the strategy is to just show up. And in showing up, wisdom will arise out of that, that kind of uh, fresh, clear, fearless, intimate presence is what allows for the wisest response to the moment to come to be. And I just want to finish this paragraph. Let's see. Um, The need for differing levels of effort depends not only on the individual, but also on the situation. In some cases, simply watching an unskillful quality with equanimity will be enough to make it go away. In other cases, one has to exert a conscious effort to get rid of it. Thus, through observation, one will realize that skillful effort has no room for doctrinaire approaches. The polar extremes of constant exertion to the point of exhaustion and its opposite, a knee-jerk fear of efforting, are both misguided here as is the seemingly 
middle way of moderation in all things. The true middle way means turning, turning one's effort to one's ability and to the task at hand. In some cases, this entails an all-out effort. In others, simple watchfulness. The ability to sense what kind and what level of effort is appropriate in any given situation is an important element in developing the basic requirements for skill, mindfulness, and discernment by putting them to use. And of course, then, we see how this puts the responsibility right into our lap because our lap, we're the that experience, that person who is willing to be present, that is also the person who will decide how to be skillful in the moment. And this gets gets right back to that point I made before about samadhi being uh, synonymous with competence. It's like it it isn't the strategy that makes us competent. You know, like if you're a parent, can you imagine if, you know, and I'm sure parents do this, um, but if you're a parent, can you imagine doing that with a strategy? Or even better, you know, because a lot of us have are or have been involved in intimate relations, relationships. So let's say we had a strategy. Okay, this is how to have a successful intimate relationship. And we just lived that, you know, with that strategy. I mean, people would not want to be around us. Because they would feel that, you know, I'm not meeting a person, I'm meeting a strategy. You know, this person is just presenting a strategy. That's what that's who they are. That's not fun. So it doesn't work that way. And so what 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 does work is this full presence, this non distracted full presence, this willingness to connect. This is really the essence of mindfulness. So the effort is whatever supports a moment of mindfulness, which is the connection, connecting with what's predominant, with what's really happening in the moment. And so the effort has to be fluid. It has to arise depending on what's predominant. And then the concentration, the the third part of this section of the Eightfold Path, built on right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So the concentration part is really describing the degree of absorption, the degree of connection, or the, the amount of continuity, the degree of continuity, maybe I should say. So I want to tonight spend a little bit more time talking about effort and then over the weeks uh, spend time looking at each of those three sections, effort, mindfulness, and concentration, and how this might look in our, in our daily lives. So one of the ways that um, Buddha talked about effort is uh, this system called the Four Exertions. It's a pretty popular model in the traditional Buddhist teachings. And it's very simple. It's very commonsensical. So I mentioned before that the definition of samadhi is when the mind is free of whatever might distort or disturb 
or agitated. So it doesn't mean that there aren't there isn't pain there, but the mind is relating to the pain in a way that isn't agitating it. It doesn't mean that there isn't a uh, difficult emotion or memory. It just means it's not the memory isn't disturbing the mind. That the mind has made the effort to relate to it in a way that doesn't agitate, that doesn't create, uh, doesn't inspire a reactivity. And this is important because if we think that in order for the mind to be pure, to have samadhi, we have to get rid of in the world everything that's agitating, that's not the practice of samadhi. You know, if only my life existed of milk toast, then I could have samadhi. But the question more is the effort to relate to the present moment with skill, to connect with the present moment with skill, is what allows for the samadhi to arise. So there are four exertions in order to do this. We need to abandon what's in the way. What's, uh, we need to abandon the cause of agitation and prevent agitating influences from coming into the mind. We need to maintain and develop stabilizing, wholesome tendencies in the mind. Right? So these four exertions, preventing, abandoning, developing, and maintaining. Two for wholesome, uh, for unwholesome, and two for wholesome. Right? We're learning to prevent and abandon the unwholesome tendencies making the effort to abandon and prevent the unwholesome tendencies, and making effort to maintain and develop the wholesome tendencies in the mind. Does that make sense? And the key here, and in general with effort, is to, is to um, develop the wisdom, the experience, that we're not helpless creatures. That actually there is a way to, to be skillful with the mind. And that it never makes sense to give up. That there's always effort that can be made to move in a direction that's healing and wholesome for us. And with all of these efforts, by definition, the benefit is immediate, it's later, it actually is forever. So anytime we do something wholesome, the benefit we experience right then and there Engaging in something wholesome is immediately feels good. And it also sets good in motion. And basically, there's no end to its effect. Of course, unfortunately, this is also true with unwholesome things. You know, like when we really do indulge in being reactive, angry, it's disturbing right then and there. And because it's reinforced that pattern, it it has effects down the road for a long time. So this week we can uh, dig into these four exertions. And it might be nice just to memorize them in the mind. The easy way is we need to make effort with unwholesome and wholesome states. And the effort we make with unwholesome states... Right? And this is, like I said, common sense. Well, we have to prevent them, and we need to abandon them when they're there already. And what we need to do to wholesome states is we need to develop them if they're not there and maintain them when they are there. 
So if there's a kind of uh, simple clarity in your mind, we need to recognize that as a wholesome state, that the sense of um, clarity in the mind, kind of equanimity or impartiality. So we're just sort of noticing things as they are, noticing the moment as it is. Then it's nice not it's a nice also to be mindful that that wholesome quality is there in the mind. Generally speaking, you know, the basic science of this is if you're mindful of wholesome tendencies, it strengthens them. So if you notice that you're feeling just a, a natural quality of kindness, just a tenderness, and if you really look at the experience of being tender or kind, it will strengthen that. If it's truly a wholesome quality, it will get stronger in the recognition of it. And in the same way, if you bring a lot of clarity to unwholesome states, it tends to break them apart or to undermine them. It's not easy to be an angry human being with a lot of clarity. I mean, to be really clear about the effect of anger in the mind, it's not easy to stay angry when you're really clear. When you see clearly the destructiveness of anger or the destructiveness of lust, of neediness, the mind tends, it, it tends to fall apart. <laughs> Unwholesome states, I guess by definition, depend on the lack of clarity to be, uh, to have some uh, stability. So what the Buddha said about this first exertion, herein, the practitioner rouses her will, will to avoid the arising of unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. And she makes effort, stirs up her energy, exerts her mind, and strives. So I'm not sure I like the translation of the word strives, but virya, the word that's used here, the Pali word, is related to virile in English. So it's kind of, it has this, there is this uh, fearlessness. Once we get a sense that we're responsible for the way the mind is, then you'll start to notice a kind of um, toughness with the mind, like this willingness to not just be led along by the habit of the mind, but willing to kind of use the mind to work with the mind. Like, I'm tired of just letting the mind do what it does. And so we, we uh, bring our experience to bear in the mind. I'm not going to go there. And we develop skill because sometimes just standing there and saying, no, I'm not going to let myself think that way, doesn't work. And so this is one of the things the Buddha talks about in terms of abandoning unwholesome states is he gives a whole series of strategies. Everything from just observing the unwholesomeness is often can be the, the best or most effective means for abandoning an unwholesome states. But sometimes it's not enough. And we need to actively cultivate the opposite. So if we've got a lot of anger in the mind, we might actively cultivate the mind state of loving kindness. Or 
we might, if that doesn't work, we might really look at how destructive the anger is, seeing clearly the unwholesomeness of it. And if that doesn't work, we might just try to distract ourselves, right? We're just caught up in a lot of anger. Well, we might just go take a bath or go walk or call up a friend and go bowling just as a way to stop the mind from indulging in unwholesome states. And if that doesn't work, we might analyze the anger. You know, think about the anger. Think about being angry. Try to break it down. Try to deconstruct it. Try to see where it's arising from. Now, of course, all of these more invasive strategies can have side effects. But it's better than just letting the mind spin in anger. Even there's even a, an additional strategy that the Buddha suggests, which is to crush mind with mind, which is suppression. But it's the last resort. Suppression is slightly better than just letting the mind spin in unwholesome states. And the, and the idea here is it's better to do something than just be a helpless, to imagine yourself as a helpless human being where all you can do is just accept the fact that your mind is an indulging in a way that's destructive for you and others. That's the worst thing to do, is to believe that you're helpless. The beginning of a spiritual path is some sense that there is something we can do about our human predicament, right? Otherwise, human beings don't engage a spiritual path. We have to have some confidence that we can use the mind to do something with this mind, this this human condition that we live in, ex experience. So I'll pick it up again next week, but we have about 12 minutes now. If people have some examples from your own experience of, you know, just in general making effort in your day to take care of the way the mind is, to take ownership, or not ownership, but let's say take responsibility for the beauty, the wholesomeness of the mind. And when you've been effective, when you haven't been effective, or any questions that you have about the talk tonight. So what comes to mind? Yeah, Liz. Um, I had a conversation with a friend, um, I don't know, maybe five days ago. That, um, I was practicing new behavior, setting a boundary with this person, and there was a reaction, and then I reacted, and then after I got off the phone, I thought, oh, okay, I didn't like the way that went down. And then, so the next time, I picked up the phone, and I was like, consciously aware, okay, I don't want to do that again. And I said a little prayer. And, and called up somebody else beforehand and said, okay, I'm going to have this conversation with this person who's angry at me. And then she just kind of let me have it and called me names, and I bought into it. And I just spit something out, and immediately when I hung up, hung up the phone, I thought, oh, that is not what I wanted to do <laughs> again. And it felt so, I mean, I called her and kind of, you know, said something nasty to her, but it really hurt me. So I felt that, and I was grateful for that experience. Um, and then I just thought, okay, space. So no calls, no phone calls. And then I've just been doing loving-kindness um, practice around, around her. And um, 
And then she had been calling me today, and I thought, okay, I can't just keep ignoring her because she's been calling the last couple days. And I picked up, picked up the phone, and I was very calm, and um, and I asked her how her day was, and she just launched into this barrage of attacking me and kind of taking taking my inventory, and I just listened. <laughs> and I, I thought, oh, I don't agree with that, or that, or that, or that. <laughs> um, but I could feel inside of me, like, I wasn't angry, I was just, like, sad, because we're good friends, and I know that she's hurting. Um, and I just said, wow, you know, it doesn't feel like a really good time to have this conversation with you. <laughs> and she called me a name and hung up. And, um, and I just, you know, I called somebody that is a good friend, and I just kind of explained it, but it felt, um, it, I was so glad that I just stopped that cycle. And um, so I'm still sitting with this weird pain of this being a good friend, but I think I can really see and I know how much she's suffering with her life right now. And, and it felt good to take care of my part, too, and to acknowledge what my wrongs were to her and then to know that I don't have to get into her analysis of me. <laughs> so it's kind of, it felt like related to what you were talking about tonight. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you brought up many things that I covered tonight. And it's just so nice to see how these practices, it's not just about our city meditation. The whole idea is to bring samadhi into these very sticky situations. The more intimate, the more fully present we are, the more we'll develop skill, including the skill that comes from uh, losing it and then noticing what it feels like. Like Liz mentioned, you know, she noticed afterwards how much it hurt after that first or one of the earlier conversations when, you know, the aftertaste was there. But that, she even said this when she was sharing that, it felt good to know that, I think you said. And it is, it feels, even though it's painful, it does feel good to know when we've made a mistake because there's nothing worse than blindly being blind in the world, you know, like to be hurting but to not understand why we're hurting. It feels better to know why we're hurting, to, to kind of be able to see, oh, this pain arose out of this interaction. And more specifically, this pain arose out of this view that was in the mind in this interaction. I hate you. I want to hurt you. You know, that, or I'm hurt and then I want to hurt, or whatever it is that you notice. So that's that kind of uh, looking back. And you mentioned all kinds of things like seeing how, noticing how you don't want to be that way. You know, that's like seeing the destructiveness or seeing the unwholesomeness, looking at that, or just being calm and clear, being equanimous, just watching you know, for as long as that works, until we get hooked or caught. Distracting yourself. You talked about avoiding talking. So a lot of these strategies in what you shared. Thanks, Liz. Any, yeah, Nick. Uh, this might relate. <coughs> about a month ago, you were talking about when an unskillful person is with a skillful person. And these weren't your words, but I'm just going to try here. And the unskillful person is acting unskillful. 
unskillful person remains skillful, the unskillful person benefits from the one that's being skillful. And my question is, is that a dynamic thing, or is, is there a conversation going on, like when she was quiet? Mm-hmm. The other person, you said, would, can benefit from that better than a codependent person. Yeah. Do you recall that? Yeah, yeah, I do, I think. Did you hear Nick in the back? He was saying, he was bringing up an example from an earlier discussion we had here, uh, I don't know how long ago, but where uh, we were talking about codependence to some degree, but that if someone's being unskillful and we can be skillful, so we're not getting caught, the mind's not getting caught, the mind's clear and connecting and non-reactive, that it can be really beneficial for the person that is caught, is reactive. But that doesn't mean they won't suffer, right? You know, they might really react still, even it sounded like in your situation, Liz. Um, so, and we can probably think of times, too, when we've been really caught up that the person that we're interacting with seems to be, you know, have a calm, clear presence. And it might really flip us out, you know, that the fact that the person isn't reacting. But in the long run, it's very useful for people because it like um, when we're really angry and somebody's really calm and clear, it becomes almost unavoidable to see how painful we're, the painful state that we're in. But if we're both, you know, wild and fiery, it's easy to miss how painful it is. But when you're around somebody who's really calm. This is the great thing, like when you can be around uh, really powerful teachers or friends when they're in a really deep place. It makes our own stuff really apparent. You know, when somebody's really calm and in a really loving place, our own lack of love, our own lack of settledness stands out. It's just like if you have a beautiful white canvas, you know, any dirt stands out. And it's the same thing with about being around people. Now, I'm not talking about, I don't know too many people who are always in this, this place, but all of us are there in moments at least. And, it's, and in that sense, it's a real gift. But it's not always a pleasant gift. <laughs> I think that's the important point, to be around people like this. Because we don't want to see all of the you know, all the stuff that's alive in us, all the negativity that's alive in us. You have a little bit of time. Any other comments people have or examples from your life you'd like to share with the group? Yeah, Sharon. Um, how to work with uh, situations where you're sort of a, an observer of interaction between two people where um, you see one piece person being hurtful to the other person, totally unaware of it, and the person who was hurt um, not reacting. And, um, you know, what, where I end up with that is, you know, compassion for the hurting person and anger for the one who's causing the hurt. And, you know, I've, I've sat and, and watched and not participated in, in, 
you know, seeing what's going on with me, and I don't know how to make something scoop out of that. Yeah. Well, what's going on with you? Well, as I said, I'm feeling compassion for the person who's being hurt, mm-hmm. but it's it's a long, long relationship, and it's gone on for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, so the choices have been made to put up with it, basically. And, um, but I still feel badly watching yeah. that. And, um, but is that compassion, would you call that a beautiful mind state that you have for that person? Because compassion is a wholesome, beautiful mind state. So I think that's the, the answer basically is we, we always should be cultivating wholesome mind states. We have every incentive to be abandoning and preventing the unwholesome, and cultivating and maintaining the wholesome. And so that's what we do. The answer is always the same. The question is, well, how do you do that in that moment? And to take responsibility for our mind states before we start taking responsibility for other people's mind states. Because the best thing we can do, and this is a little bit related to what Nick was bringing up, the best thing we can do is model wholesome mind states like model forgiveness of the person who's being what we see as inappropriate, modeling compassion, tenderness for the person who's being hurt. And uh, that, that itself is a really good thing. So even if we don't actually say something or do something, just to be able to relate to both parties in a wholesome way or to the situation in a wholesome way is a real gift in the situation. And it increases the probability that what we say or do will be useful. There's no guarantee, even if we're in a good place, that what we say or do is going to be immediately useful for the two people involved. But we increase the odds if we're sure, we're pretty sure that we're in a good place, you know, that uh, we're not acting out our anger toward that person. We're not, um, like compassion isn't pity. Compassion is understanding that that uh, I care about your pain. This is pain, and I care about it. So it's a it's a like a, it's a coming together in their pain, like understanding that this is pain. This is painful, and I care. It isn't like it has to it has to be fixed. I mean, if you can do something about it, then we want to do something about it. But the compassion isn't dependent on you getting rid of this person's suffering, the tenderness. Well, and there, there clearly isn't anything I can do about it, and that's why I don't get involved, because... But one thing you can do about it is understanding. And this is really... So this is important, because, like, we could say that about the world at large now. And maybe this is a good way to end tonight, because, you know, it's a bit of a crazy... Pla- I mean, it's probably always been... I think it has always been crazy, and maybe even more crazy than it is now. So I, I, I have to catch myself, because I'll, I'll superficially think it's worse now. And then I'll read a little history, <laughs> or watch a program about a previous time, and I'll go, oh no, <laughs> it's, there's been a lot of suffering for a long time. So we need to remember that, and then we need to, we need to keep an open mind that Putting this mind, this heart, in a really good place is a very effective thing to do. 
It's a real support for ourselves and for and for the world. And then what we do out of that wholesome mind state, that wholesome place, is also likely to be useful. But just being in a good place, in a loving, clear, connected place, not a withdrawn place, is really be fearless in a fearful world is a wonderful thing to do. We have to leave it here. Have a good, safe week. It's going to be rocky for a lot of us, so it will be nice to kind of remember this is just something to, to practice with, all the ups and downs, all the concerns that might arise that we can practice with it. So let's just take a moment and aspire to really open our hearts fully to the emotions, the fear, the thoughts, the activity in the days ahead. And to deeply trust the capacity to be open, to feel what we feel, to see what we see, and to let things be. May we live in a way that supports the happiness, the ease, and the liberation of all beings. May we all be free from suffering and free from the roots of suffering. Thanks for coming, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.